So uh, it, it was, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago. I, I, Jenny and I had just finished up working at the church plant that we started. I've told you guys stories from that years, uh, in several sermons. Uh, we had finished up and we, we just had prayerfully decided that we needed to take a break from ministry for about a year. And so we took a break from ministry and I had a buddy who owned a car dealership. He actually owned this conglomerate of car dealerships. And he gave me a job working at this car dealership conglomerate um, as their online marketing director. So I managed the website, I managed the Facebook, all the social media, all that kind of stuff. You imagine me doing that. Um, I did this all day. Like that. Uh, and and I, so I, that's what I did. And it was a pretty incredible job. I went from uh, preaching and doing, doing ministry to just all of a sudden this guy put me in this, this position that was kind of in the upper echelons of the company. Like I would sit in their big deal meetings where they would decide direction and vision and all that kind of stuff. It was a cool opportunity to learn from this guy and to just sit under him and to uh, kind of be, be a part of what he did. But one of the things that I, I'll never forget was, his name was Scott. Scott, who owned this dealership and several other car dealerships, called me in to his office one day. And, you know, you get a call from your boss like that, and you're like, oh, man. So I go into his office, and I'm like, Scott, what can I do for you? And, and he said, Kent, I just, I need to ask you a question today as a pastor. I need you to put on your pastor hat and not be social media guy. And I was like, all right, cool. So, I'll, so I sit down and I was like, what's going on, Scott? And he starts to share with me this dilemma that he was in about his finances. Here's how the dilemma went, all right? And now let me give you a quick backstory about Scott. He and his wife had gone to Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. Do you remember that? Haiti was just devastated. They had been very moved by what had happened in Haiti. And they, they uh, literally, as a family, they began to sponsor an entire village of people. They started paying for their food. They built a church for the people there. They built a school and funded the entire school. They funded three meals a day for these kids that went to the school. I mean, just an incredible thing that he did. So I knew that about Scott going into this whole thing. And so he sits down. And he says, I just need to ask you a question, Ken. And I said, all right, tell, hit, hit me. I've been a pastor for a long time. And this was his question to me. His question was, Kent, all my friends have been doing this, and uh, I have been thinking about whether I should do it or not, too. You you guys all had that problem, right? Like, my friends are doing it. Like, should I do it, too? And he said, all my friends have been doing this, and I've been thinking about if I should do it, too. And I was like, what are you talking about, Scott? And he said, I'm wondering if I should buy a jet. (laughs) Now, I, I, I stopped him, and I was like, Scott... I need you to know, that's not the normal question people ask their pastor when it comes to finances, right? Normally the question is, I can't pay my bills and uh, can you help me, right? But Scott, is, he, he was wealthy, he was sitting there, all of his friends had jets and he was wondering if he should want one too or not. And what he was trying to go through was he, he, was, he was saying, you know, I know that if we had a jet, we would use it for ministry, I know that. We would take it, we'd go down to, to Haiti, and we would go, it would be easier, quicker, we could get back and forth, never have to worry about all the stuff that we have to worry about when we fly public transportation, like, you know, American Air and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and and he, was, he was like, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to determine whether this is something Scott just wants because it seems cool, or Scott wants because, because it would be good for ministry. And we sat there and we talked about it. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you my answer today, but uh, we sat there and talked about what he should do and whether he should do it. And I didn't give him like, this is what you should do, but I tried to help him evaluate. But one of the things that struck me about Scott that I don't, you don't see in a lot of people is that he wanted to please God with how he handled his resources. 
At the end of the day, I can tell you 100% that for Scott, the issue is not just should I or should I not buy a jet? Not do I have the money or like how many of you would love to have that problem in your life? Like, (laughs) yeah, most of us are on the other end of the spectrum, right? That wasn't his problem or or what he, how he handled his life. What he, how he handled his life was he was trying to make sure that his resources honored God. And here's what I found as I reflected back on, I mean, it was kind of a weird conversation for me and uh, I thought he was going to ask to borrow 20 bucks, you know, turns out I should have been asking him to borrow 20 bucks. Uh, I sat there clicking on my little mouse and I was thinking about how for Scott, generosity was his basic operating system. It was the way that he thought about his wealth. Now, you may be like, oh, Kent, just because he, he, he thought about buying a jet so that he could, like, I don't know, that may be mixed motives there, Kent. But can I just tell you some of the reasons I know that about him? Scott and his wife, uh, they also, they not only fund this entire village in Haiti, which they don't make a big deal about. I'm making a big deal about it, but they don't. They also, uh, in Wichita, Kansas, which is a pretty major city, if you ever watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, shout out to Wichita, Kansas in that movie, uh, <coughs> Wichita, Kansas, you, you, it's a pretty big city, and, and they went into this downtown area where the houses were kind of run down and weren't very nice. They bought an old mansion, bought an entire mansion, and they refurbished the entire mansion, and they turned it into a place for homeless moms to come and live for free. And, they, and not only did they do that, homeless single moms, but they also poured into them and gave them job training and taught them and did all this, like just loved on these ladies. Incredible ministry that they did. Uh, Scott also kind of hobnobbed with all the, the rich people in town. And so Scott would use his influence to do fundraisers for the kingdom, for Christian organizations. And he would bring together thousands of people to donate into these Christian missions to make a big difference, a huge splash in the community. Dude was awesome. I even think, I can't prove it, I've never asked him, but I even think he paid my salary for a year not needing an online marketing director. He didn't need the position. He had another guy whose whole job was to be the marketing director already. And I think, I think Scott did it because he believed in me and wanted to give us the ability to have some income while we got kind of restored from being in church planting world. I mean, that's the kind of man he was now, and, and is to this day. And so I, I want to I share something with you that as I've gone and I've done ministry now for over 20 years, and one of the things that I have noticed over and over again is this little thing that I'm about to share with you. I have never, I have never personally known a wealthy follower of Jesus who isn't also incredibly generous. Can I say that again? I have never personally, there may be, maybe there is some like, uh, like unicorn out there on this, on this subject, but I have never personally known, never personally known a wealthy follower of Jesus who isn't also incredibly generous. I just haven't. I've known, I've known really wealthy people who are not generous at all. Anybody get an amen on that? You know, you know some people like that, right? I know incredibly wealthy people who are like, like stingy about every single penny, but I've never known, I've never known a really wealthy Christian, Christ follower, who isn't just incredibly generous. Because here's what I've learned about, about wealth in doing ministry, watching it, studying this from kind of a different perspective than probably most of you have thought about it. Wealth, wealth it's not that wealth really makes a person generous or doesn't make them generous, right? So it's not that Scott got wealthy and then it made him generous. What wealth does is wealth only amplifies what's already in a person. 
That makes sense to you? So if some of you are thinking, well, some, like I've heard people in my time who have said, when I win the lottery, I'm going to give big to the church. And, and I, I've never been brave enough to ask the question, but I always want to ask, but do you give big now? Like, right? Because if you don't give big now, what makes you think that you would give big then? There, there is this place where it is the person who has done something, like what Scott did when he had a little bit is the same thing that he does when he has a lot. It just looks a lot bigger now. Does that make sense to you? And so what I found is if somebody is generous when they have very little, they will also be generous when they have a lot. The person who is greedy with a very little will also be very greedy with a lot. It's really the truth. So, so th- that's, this is why I think it's so important for us to check our motives when it comes to how we think about our finances. This is what Scott was doing, right? He was checking his motives. He was talking with me, asking me questions so that he could check his motives and say, are my motives really pure in this or are they good or are they bad? And so today what I want to do is we're going to jump into the scripture, Acts chapter 20. If you want to turn your Bibles there. If you don't have the YouVersion Bible app, you should download that. Jump in the App Store, download it. It's so fantastic. It's free. Um, but it, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20 today, all right? So uh, Acts 20, here, let me tell you what is happening. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and see just this little point, this little place where he shares kind of his motive for how he did what he did, all right? So while you guys are getting Acts chapter 20, I'll give you the setup. Here's the story. Paul has been going out and starting church after church and all of kind of, uh, in, in all through like Greece, Asia, all these places, he's been going and setting up uh, these churches. Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. And while he's on his way back to Jerusalem, he knows something isn't, something's not sitting right with him. The Spirit has told him that when he gets to Jerusalem, it's not going to be a good thing. And so Paul starts to make choices that are odd, unless you know that he knows he's going to confront something that, that is not going to be pleasant for him. Like he, he makes a choice where uh, they're all traveling on this ship on a boat, and the boat makes port, and Paul says, you know what, I'm going to get off, and I'm going to walk, like a 50-mile walk, and I'll meet the ship up at this next port, because I, I just, I'm just going to walk. And it, the scripture doesn't tell us why he does this. All I can figure, the best thing that I can guess, is that Paul just is in the middle of the darkness of dealing with all of the frustration and the fear and kind of the panic of knowing that something's happening and what's going to happen and dealing with that with God. And Paul just needed to get away from everybody and walk. You ever been there? (laughs) You just, you're like, I just got to get out of this house and go for a walk, right? This is Paul. He's going to walk 50 miles. He, He meets back up with all of his travelers. They sail past this little town called Ephesus where Paul had done a ton of ministry. He had tons of friends there. He knows if we stop there, it's going to take a long time. And so Paul sails on a little bit further. And when he gets there, he calls for the Ephesian church leaders to come to him. And you can tell by the, the, the words that Paul uses, the words that he, he talks, the way he talks with them, the way he phrases things, that Paul thinks things are not going to go well. And we come into this incredible moment where the leaders from this church in Ephesus have come together, and they've come together with Paul, and they're going to meet and talk, and Paul is just going to share his heart. And I want you to listen for his motive in all of this, all right? So listen. Here we go. Acts 20, verses 32 through 35. Paul says this, or, This is Luke recording what Paul said. He says, Now I commit to you, I commit you, excuse me, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
This is not the, the words of somebody who's like, hey, let's go party. He's like, I am committing you. I am giving you over to God. I'm giving you over to God's word. You're no longer under my authority. You're no longer under me. I am giving you over to God fully. This, I mean, these, these, this is like deathbed kind of confession type thing that Paul is saying here. He says this. He starts to reflect back on his own ministry with them, with these leaders. And he says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Paul, Paul's saying, I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> when I was early on in ministry, I got this letter one time from these people and it, inside of it, it had this paper uh, rug in it. It was like a printed paper rug. And the letter said, if you put this rug on the ground and get on your knees and pray on it three times a day, you will receive $10,000. Like, <laughs> Never got my $10,000. I'm still mad about it, right? Uh, I, I don't know. I kept it in the trash. Uh, that's where I kept it. But the, Paul, Paul didn't get together and be like, hey, I've got a bunch of printed rugs that you can... That's, he didn't try to steal their money. There are people who do that, right? They use religious things to try to steal money. It's why every time a pastor starts talking about money, there's some people who go like this. And rightly so, because there have been so many religious people who have tried to take advantage of good, well-meaning people. You should have your cackles up a little bit and be thinking and thoughtful about this. But Paul says, you know, I never coveted anybody's silver. I didn't covet anybody's gold or clothing. I didn't want it for myself. He says, you know yourselves that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. You may not know this, but Paul was actually a leather worker um, and what he, he, what he made with leather, at least this is what scholars believe he, what he did, is he actually made tents, not like nylon with the poles that pop up, but like tents, like think Middle Eastern goat herders tents, all right? And Paul would have sewn those together and probably would have been made out of leather is what scholars think. And so Paul is saying to them, like, Paul would have had rough, tough hands. He, he, would, have, he would have been strong in his arms and pulling the leather and making sure it all, he didn't have modern tools, the man would, would have worked all day long, sweating in the sweltering heat, talking with other people. There's somebody over here tanning hides, and there's somebody over here dyeing them. And Paul is talking with them all. You can picture it, right? You can smell the, the acrid of the chemicals and the things that they're using to, to tan the hides. Like, Paul is in the middle of all that. And what he says is, I provided for all my needs, and not only my needs, I provided for my companions' needs. And then he says this. This is where we get into motive. Listen. It says, in everything I did, I showed you, but by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of, Je- uh, words of the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Did you know that the, in this place, this is, uh, this is the only time, the only place that we know, uh, we have Jesus' words, these r- words recorded, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's, it's not... Re- no, none of the other gospels have that. It's only Paul telling us this here, that evidently this was probably something the early church was quoting and reminding each other of, and Paul reminds them of that. It's more blessed to give than receive. I want you to notice for a moment, I want you to notice for a moment that the motive Paul had for, when, for how hard he worked. Think about just for a moment, before we change the slide, think about for a moment why, what your motive is for how hard you work. Think about the story, like if I asked you the question, why do you work so hard? 
most of us, our answer would be like, well, my dad taught me you just pull up your boots and you got to get out there and work hard, man, right? And, and some of you would be like, I just, found, I just love it. I love my work. And it's what I, I was just made for this and it's what I do and I just love my work. And some of you would be like, man, I work because it puts the green stuff in my pants, right? Like I get green stuff. It goes right here inside of this thing and I love it and I get as much green stuff in the thing as I can and I love the green stuff, right? And that's how all of us would have, there's something that we would all have an answer for that. But did you hear what Paul's answer was? He said, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. How many of you work so that you can help others? So that most of us work so we can help ourselves, right? Paul said he worked so he could help others. Can I just tell you, I think that there are two traps in our culture. Two traps when it comes to work. When was the last time you heard a good sermon on work, right? <laughs> Probably never, maybe. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me just tell you the two traps that I think we fall into in our culture when it comes to work. The first trap is this. We see work as a means to prosperity. The, these people who are falling into this trap, they work hard, they store up, and they pour out for themselves. All right? So my guess is there is a good chance if you're an American, <laughs> probably you are, that you... You fall into this trap. You work hard, you store up, and you pour out for yourself. It's all about me. This, I, I, I do the work. I work, I, I work hard, man. I, I, I put in so many hours out at Toyota. Can't, I, I have a second job. Whatever it is that you work hard. You really do work hard. And that's a good thing. Don't hear me saying that's a bad thing. But you do it solely so you can store up for yourself and you can pour out for yourself. Make sense? That's the first trap. Now, I'm going to take you. Some of you are like, that doesn't sound so bad. I like, can't I do that? Like, that sounds like what we're supposed to do. I taught my children to do that. My dad taught me to do that. My mom taught me, whatever. Uh, it doesn't sound so bad. I'm going to take you in a moment, show you something that Jesus said that, like, points out. He's so good at pointing out the traps, right? So here's, here's the second trap. Here's the second, here's the second one. The second type of trap is this attitude that sees work as an obstacle and tries to avoid it. You know any of those people? You know? These are the people, <laughs> these are the people who work hard at not working, right? <laughs> You're like, man, if you just put all the effort into working that you put into not working, you could make something of yourself. Like, I would love to pay you more if you just work for it, right? Stop working and not work. And th- these people, they, they, they kind of, they come and they feel this sense of entitlement, you, you met them? They believe, they believe that they deserve, they believe they deserve to have because they deserve it. <laughs> Why do you deserve this? Well, because I deserve it, of course, <laughs> right? Like some of you have children that are like this and you need to maybe kick them out of your house or something. Like, uh, not if they're young, but like, uh, <laughs> I'll get a call this week. I kicked my five-year-old out. Thanks for the advice, Wagner. Like, don't kick out your five-year-olds, all right? Uh, <laughs> they, these people believe they deserve it because why? They deserve it. They're, they're entitled. Now, let me, I, I, some of you really want me to talk about that trap, but I think probably most of us deal with the first trap more, that we work hard so we can store and pour. We store and pour, we store and pour, we store up for ourselves and we pour out for ourselves. So let me, I'm gonna deal with both real quickly, but let me first start with the one that I think most of us probably probably are captive to. Listen to this. This is a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. Man, if you don't read the scripture, can I just implore you? Can I 
beg you, I like beg you to get like get into the scripture and read it and put it into your heart and let Jesus work in you. Man, I this stuff gets me every time I read it, every time I study it. I, I look at it with an adult mind and I, I'm like, man, Jesus is just talking to me. So listen, I want to I want to read this for you. This is a parable, a story that he told. Luke chapter 12, 16 through 21. And he told them this parable, a story. It says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. I have this buddy who farms way out in western Kansas, near Colorado, and he told me that he had the best corn crop that he's ever had. He just, like, incredible corn crop. And I was like, man, that's awesome. Like, what are you going to do? And he was like, well, if I get another 20 years of these, then we'll be doing really well. <laughs> we can finally pay off our debt. I was like, oh, well, that's not good. Like, probably shouldn't have that much debt, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> This guy, this rich guy, he yields this huge harvest out of his farm. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain, right? Store and pour for yourself. He said, you, he said, and then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. You ever heard this line? Ready? Eat, drink, and be merry. You ever heard that line before? This is where it comes from. Jesus telling them. And some of you are like, what's so wrong with that? That sounds really good, Kent. Right? This guy, he's already rich. He plants his grain. It's his grain. He pulls up a lot of, like, lots more grain comes out in the harvest. He takes it. He keeps it. He looks at it. He has so much that the existing barns, the existing silos, he has to hold his grain. They're just not big enough. So what's he going to do? He tears them down. Doesn't even use the old ones. He tears them down, builds a new one, gets, gets the biggest barns he can. What's so wrong with that? I want, like, isn't the American dream to eat, drink, and be merry? <laughs> isn't that like what all of you hope for someday? That someday I will be able to stop working when I'm 60 some years old and then I will just for the rest of the time sit in my like lazy boy doing this, right? That's our dream. That's our dream in America. But I want you to listen to what Jesus says. This is, wow, he's so good. He, turn, he flips stuff on its head like this. Listen. But God said to him, God says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. He, he's going to die. This just turned dark, huh? <laughs> then, then who will get what you have, pre- what you have prepared for yourself? God says to him, you're going to die tonight. Way to go. I'm glad you built some really big barns. You're dead. Right? Who's going to get it now? It's not yours anymore. You don't get to do anything with it. And then this is where Jesus, just, just a few words. Here he goes. Ready for it? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. I told you, it's a trap. It's a trap, right? It's a trap. It's from Star Wars, if you've never seen it. It's pretty good movie. It's a little film flick out there. (laughs) I'm such a nerd. I'm really sorry. Uh, It is, this is how it will be for those of us who store up for ourselves and pour out for ourselves. It is it is this, it, this is how it'll be whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. 
The person who stores up for themselves without any thought of being rich towards God will lose their life and everything they've stored up. Can I just tell you a quick secret? The reason this is a problem for this guy is he, th- he thought this, this little portion of life that he lives on earth, planet earth, it's, a, it's like this big. It's just tiny. Uh, if you are truly, really an eternal being, like Jesus who lived, died, rose again, that guy who came back from the dead and said, hey, I can do this for all of you if you just follow me, that guy sa- says that there is this eternal life, that there is this life that you started here and it will just last on into eternity forever and ever. And what Jesus is trying to point out is this guy lived like this little, this little sliver of time. It was the only thing that mattered. And he stored every resource up just for himself. It's all about him. What about all of this over here? What about it? He, he wasn't rich towards God. How do you be rich towards God? Jesus, Jesus says several times, um, he'll say things like, don't store up your treasure on earth where rust and moth can get to it, but, or thieves could break in and steal it, but instead, store up your treasure in heaven. Do you know how you store up treasure in heaven? I'd never heard a pastor preach on this, and I, I started putting it together to figure it out. Do you know how you store up treasure in heaven? People. People. Because no other treasure goes to heaven. Right? This, this my wife was like, you look hot in that shirt. I was like, Jenny, come on. She didn't actually say those words. She's real embarrassed right now. She's like, stop it, Kent. Stop it. <laughs> my time is going like this, my son. Uh, this, this shirt, I like this shirt. It's a real nice shirt. Guess what? When I die, it's staying here. Not going with me. Do you know what will go with me? Hopefully, oh, good night. Hopefully all of you. Hopefully I have given something and poured something out in you that when you get there, I will have some kind of treasure in heaven because I've invested some of my time. I've, I've taken my talent. I've taken my treasure and I've invested it into things that will go with me into eternity. And so Jesus says, says that God will say to this man, you were rich towards yourself. You weren't rich towards anybody else. You weren't. This is what happens to that person. So what about the second kind of trap? I told you that first one was a trap. You didn't believe me. And now I'm telling you, Jesus is the one who said it. Here's the second kind of trap. Real quick, let's get into it. This is what Paul says to the person who believes they're entitled, that they deserve it. Why? Because they deserve it. And this is what Paul says the church in Thessalonica held as their rule. This is 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He says this. For even when we were with you, while Paul was with them at the church, he says, we gave you this rule. This was the Christian rule of thumb when it comes to work. He said, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Some of you for real with your adult children need to kick them out. (laughs) Not the five-year-olds, but the 25-year-olds, all right? You, you You need to tell them, go get a job. Go work. Start paying me rent. Start paying for my, the food that I'm putting on your table. Like, this is a biblical principle to hold some boundaries around this with other people, to actually work hard. This is a real thing. It's really important. It, it, I was talking with my kids yesterday about how we sometimes may have our kids make really hard choices about stuff. Like, do I want this video game or do I want this thing? And we, because they don't just get everything. They don't get to be in every activity that they want to be in. They have to choose. Why? Because I want them to know how to make hard choices in life. Haven't you had to make hard choices in life? And that's what, that's what this boundary is about, is about teaching people that you, you don't just get things just because you deserve it. Now, that doesn't, Christians, I have found, are the most generous, kind people when it comes to helping the poor. Like, incredible. 
But there's a place where you, like what Paul's saying is, if you don't, if you don't work, if you're not willing to be involved in the process, you don't get to eat. And that, that whew, it kind of hits on that trap real hard. So listen, listen, Christianity, Christianity isn't opposed to working hard. Now, I've heard preachers uh, preach sermons that almost, and some of you have known preachers who don't, I used to work with this guy, I won't use his name just in case he ever saw this on the internet for some reason, but he would, I'd walk past his office, this was a pastor, I'd walk past his office, his hand would be on his mouth, and he'd be sitting like this, and if you peeked around the corner, you'd see his eyes were closed, he could sleep sitting up with his hand on the mouse. <laughs> it was amazing, I'd, I'd be like, ah, like straight ahead and run off, you know, <laughs> but so... Maybe this is why pastors don't preach this. Maybe they don't work hard, some of them, themselves. But I, I have heard kind of this sentiment that, that we should just be grace-oriented, which is true. We should be very grace-oriented as Christians. But what the scripture says is that Jesus came in both grace and truth. And what I'm saying to you is just because we have a ton of grace and we will walk with people through really hard financial situations, it doesn't mean that Christianity is opposed to working hard. And then it also doesn't mean that we're opposed to gathering wealth. This is something, this is probably more common, something you've felt more often, is that it feels like Christians should just be eternally poor, like financially poor. And that's not, that's not biblical either. It's not, it's not, it's not that Christianity is opposed to like you working hard or you gathering wealth. What Christianity is opposed to is you seeing yourself as an end unto yourself. You're all about store and pour for me. Store up for me, pour out for me. Store up for me, pour out for me. Store up for me, pour out for me. That's what Christianity is diametrically opposed to. What, and can I just say this? What a limited vision of life that is. To just store up and pour out for yourself. What a limited vision of life you must have if you think that you as an end unto yourself is the most important thing in this world. You don't know what you're missing by investing in other people's lives and seeing lives transformed and giving yourself away and seeing real change happen, real life change in front of you. You don't know what you're missing. What a limited vision of life. Do you know where I think Christians have gotten this idea from? Can I just take you to it? Listen, this is 2 Corinthians 8 9. This is why I think these wealthy Christians that I've known have also been incredibly generous Christians. It's because they have this vision that didn't come from them, but it's a, it's a greater, grander vision that came directly from the good news, directly from Jesus himself. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, oh, is he rich? He lit, he He's God. He literally has everything at his disposal. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, for you, 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 for your sake. What did he do? He became what? He became what? He became what? You're saying to me that God became poor? You're saying to me that he who had everything came because there were some people who had nothing so that he could give everything so they could have it? <laughs> for your sake, for Kent's sake, he became poor so that 
through you, through his poverty, poverty might become rich. This is the gospel. I am I'm one of the richest people alive because I found salvation in Jesus because Jesus came to earth. He gave up everything. Can you even, I can't even begin to think about being God and putting myself into this. <laughs> like all of the limitations that we all inhabit all of the time, all of the time. And he, he gives all that up, puts himself into this so he can come after you and after me and he lives and he dies and he gives everything for us. This is the Christian story. So what does it mean for us? Could I boil this sermon down to four words for you real quickly? How many of you would love that? You're like, you could have done it in four words? Big jerk. Like, <laughs> Here we go. You ready for it? Four words. Work hard. Be generous. Work hard. Be generous. What? What if you raised your vision a little bit? And you, you really did work hard. Now, please don't hear me say, for, for the workaholic in here, don't abandon your family. Don't, don't do things that are hurtful to other people by, by working hard. But when you're working and it's your time to be there, work hard. Be the, the best worker that your work knows. Work hard. But be generous. Don't do it so that you can store up and pour out just for yourself. See what life is like when you store up and you pour out for the kingdom of heaven. See the kingdom advanced into people's lives. So I did a little research for the sermon. And you were like, I thought the four words were the end, Kent. Like, I did some research, and I just want to give you some statistics that I found that I thought was really intriguing, all right? So I'm going to stand right here, and I'm going to pretend like I'm a a, a weather person, all right? So here we go. You ready for this? These are statistics somebody else put together. 10 to 25% of people in churches tithe. Now, tithing, if you don't know what that means, it's an Old Testament principle that means that you, the Jewish people were meant to give 10% of their income to, to God. And so, uh, and I'm going to talk more about the tithe and what that means. And we're going to talk about, does that mean Christians need to honor it and all that kind of stuff? So be sure to come all this month so you can learn some of that kind of stuff. Uh, but 10 to 25% of people in churches tithe. Listen to this. Christians give at about 2.5% per capita. That means on average, on average, the per, if we take all the people who are tithing and the people who maybe give nothing, we average that out, all of us in here give about 2.5% of our income. Like you probably pay more to Uncle Sam than that, right? We, we, we give 2.5%. People t- tip better than that. How much do you tip? <laughs> right? So we give 2.5% per capita. Look at this though. During the Great Depression... They gave 3.3%. Now, I know we're in kind of our own little Great Depression right now, right? Like, some of you are like, we may not be calling it, but I've been depressed for a while now, Kent. Like, uh, so we're in kind of our own Great Depression, but uh, we, man, government's been just throwing money at you, right? Because they know how to make Americans happy. Like, you throw a little money at us, and we're like, ah, I forgot, there's no problems, right? And, and, but there's some economic challenges, there's some trouble. I know that it's hard for all of us, but you know, you've studied the Great Depression, right? My grandma grew up in the Great Depression. She, she would not throw away Burger King cups. We drank out of the same paper Burger King cup for every Thanksgiving meal for like 20 years because it affected her so much. She was like, you don't throw anything away, Kent, right? That's what the Great Depression did to people. But during that time, people were giving at a higher rate than Christians today. Did that get you? Listen to this. If Christians in America, this one shocked me. If Christians in America would tithe 10%, there would be an additional 
$165 billion for churches to distribute. Could you imagine? Our church is committed to outreach ministry. I, I, I was thinking about today as I was preaching first service, you guys don't know this, but there are a lot of times when we're thinking about doing an outreach that we, we like are like, should we spend the money on that? Like things are real tight. Should we spend the money on it? And, and we've just made this commitment. You know, if you've been here for very long, like we're committed to missions. We're committed to outreach because in my mind, it's about investing in people. Like that's what's most important, right? So we make that decision. But it's hard. what if like we didn't have to make hard decisions like that, but we could use money every day to make people's lives, like see people coming to know Jesus, right? So here's the deal. I, I looked at these stats and it started getting me thinking. I, I, the global impact of this kind of thing would be phenomenal. And here's just a few things that the church could do with the kind of money. I mean global church. Listen to this. Ready? Let's put those up there. $25 billion could, be, could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. Five years, the church globally could end global hunger and starvation. That's crazy to me. $12 billion could go to eliminating illiteracy in five years. Everybody in the world reads. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places in the world where $1 billion uh, people live on less than $1 per day. Any of you have this? I have this little feature in my bathroom where I can turn this little knob and fresh water comes. You guys have one of those? Oh, so nice. You, none of you are still like carrying the thing on your head down to the little watering hole, right? Like <laughs> $15 billion, we could solve that problem for all the world. $1 billion could fully fund all overseas missions work. My heart beats for missions work. When I was a youth pastor, I used to take two missions trips a year with my students because I wanted them to have a heart for missions. I wanted them to care about the kingdom going outside of our little small town. Like, I just wanted it to beat inside of them. My heart still beats. You guys know, I've said to you before, we will cut my salary before we cut missionaries in this church. We will. I will not cut missionaries. I will not see us not supporting missions and God's mission in the world, right? So $1 billion, we could fund all of the missions in all of the world if all of the church started tithing, not just us, but everybody. And then still, 100 to 110 billion would still be left over for additional ministry expansion. We could change some things. We could change some things. Can I tell you a quick story? Um, some of you know that uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I, maybe it was almost a month ago now, uh, we went to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Have you been there? It's beautiful. Like, you're on the beach, and there's <coughs> palm trees everywhere. Uh, there's dolphins. Like, I mean, you, and we just, we had the package where everything was included. All the food was included. That We found out that you could get unlimited strawberry daiquiris with no, with no alcohol in them because you had to pay if there was alcohol, but if there wasn't, you just, we called them smoothies. So, man, we, we'd be like, looks like it's smooth 30, and we'd, like, we'd hit another smoothie, you know? I, I swear, I gained 10 pounds on this one trip just drinking smoothies. It was bad news. And we, uh, so much so, this whole thing was so much so that, like, I, w- I literally was telling Jenny, I was like, I feel guilty that, like, these people are serving us, they're doing all this stuff. I just felt guilty all the time. Now, some of you are like, I can't believe you're talking about that right on, on, like, on the tail of this sermon, Kent, that you went and you had this, like, I'm not giving any money because big old sucker taking it down to Mexico, right? And can I tell you something? We, we didn't pay for that. 
We didn't pay for it. Actually, we were there with 500 other people who didn't pay for it. There was this ministry called the Harvest Foundation. And uh, they have a passion for pastors. And they know, you may not know this, but the burnout rate for pastors is exorbitant. It's like off the charts, pastors burning out and leaving ministry. And most of them, because they don't, their skill set, like, <laughs> I can get up in front of 500 people and talk. Like, that's all I got, right? Like, their skill set doesn't work very well for most jobs and industries. So a lot of them sell cars and do insurance and are just burnt out. And so this ministry started going, what if we invested in pastors and tried to help them make it through the long haul? And what if once a year we just gave them as a gift this just, you come, literally, they didn't expect anything of us. The only thing they did was we went to, I think it was three sessions where they were just worship services. And to hear 500 pastors and their spouses singing to Jesus was like incredible. Just like makes us look like, like puts us to shame, blowing the roof off as they sing to Jesus. They just poured into us. And we just got to sit around with nobody saying, uh, hey, pastor, can I talk to you? I've got, which is fine. This is what we do, right? But we didn't have to do it that week. I found out while I was there that the Harvest Foundation, how they're funded, how they're funded is this. There's this guy who is a serial entrepreneur. He just starts business after business after business. And he has slowly become very, like, crazy successful. There, some, one of his, his investors was telling me that he, he's, some of his investments are reaping, like, multiple commas now in, in his investments. Uh, and so I, I was like, man, that's crazy. And what they told me, what we found out, was that the serial entrepreneur, what he does is he takes 10% of everything that his businesses bring in. And that 10% goes straight into the Harvest Foundation and it pays for pastors to go off and to just be pampered on and cared about and taken care of. So if you were judging me earlier, you should feel bad now, all right? (laughs) They they care for you. And it hit me, I thought about it, that this guy, this guy got it. He had a higher vision for what God could do with his generosity. He had a higher vision for his work than to just store up for me and to pour out for me. It wasn't all about him. I'm sure the guy has nice stuff, but I also know that he shared it and gave his nice stuff away. And I I, I figured it up. I'm pretty sure that it cost him, that that foundation, about $250,000 for pastors to do that for a week. And this year, they're expanding it even more. And they're going to do one in Gatlinburg and one in Destin, Florida. Two of them this year. They're expanding and they're growing. And, and I was thinking about this guy that someday, he's going to have lived this same little sliver of life that you and I have lived. And instead of being the guy who gets to heaven and God says, what would you do with it? And he says, I built really big barns. <laughs> He's going to get there and there's going to be all of these pastors. And then I think there will probably be all these churches around the pastors who didn't even know what that guy was doing by investing in their pastor. And that he's going to come in and they're going to start clapping. And he's going to, because this guy, we saw him and he, he would just, he was very humble. He never, like I'm giving him way more of a spotlight than they ever gave him at the thing. And he, I think he'll probably hang his head in just humility and probably tears coming through from his eyes because he realized that he, he will realize the investment that he made by investing in the long term, investing in the long shot. What about you? What's your vision like? What's your vision for your life? Are you all about store and pour for yourself? 
can I just talk to you as adults real quickly? Uh, just as adults. I, um, I, I need you to know, because if you're sitting there like this, like one of those finance sermons, I hate churches like this. I'm not coming back next week. Can I just tell you something? Every church has money. And some churches use it well and some don't. And uh, I know at this church, I don't set my own salary. Did you know that? I don't go, you guys better pay me this this year or else I'm leaving. I don't do that. As a matter of fact, if our elders talk about salary or any of that kind of stuff, benefits, I have to leave the room. And our elders, our leaders who are in charge of that stuff, they don't get paid. And they are very diligent, godly men who are not yes men. They don't just, they're not a board that just says yes to anything Kent says. But can I just talk to you as an adult? It actually takes money to do ministry. And I've heard people over the years, maybe you've been one of these people who who say this. They'll say, I've heard people say churches are businesses. You ever heard somebody say that? Uh, They'll say churches are businesses, just like the business world. You got income and you got got expenses and you got to keep it. And can I just tell you something real quick? They are plain wrong. They're plain wrong. And if you think that, I'm, I'm being a little gutsy and a little bold to tell you, you're plain wrong. You're wrong about it. Churches are not like business. They're not just businesses. The difference between them is this. The difference between them is this. Businesses use people to make money. That's what businesses do. You all work for a business. That, that business pays you money to utilize your time, resource, talentedness, and giftedness. They pay you money so that they can use you so that they can make more money than they pay you. Guarantee it. <laughs> Guarantee it. They're using you to make more money than they pay you. This is why a lot of entrepreneurs start businesses because they figure that out and they're like, I could just make the money myself, right? Businesses use people they use you to make money. Do you know what churches do? This is, this is why it looks similar, but it's so very different. We use money to make people. That's what we do. When you give a dollar here, I'm just talking to you as an adult. I'm, this is not Kent trying to twist your arm. I'm not going to ask for your money at the end of this. I'm not going to cry big crocodile tears and be like, I need a new jet. So if you guys could, I, I'm not going to do that. But I am telling you as an adult... When you give money here, we are diligent as a church about squeezing every penny out of it to change lives. So much so that there are people on staff here who haven't gotten a raise in several, several, several years while we've been feeding people out in the parking lot and putting candy on their doorsteps. I'm not talking about me. I will never get up and talk about me, but I will talk about our staff who's poured out their hearts for this church. They've poured out their hearts, living at a wage that I don't think many of you would even take. And I'm just asking, church, when will we all stand up and be adults? When will we start to transform that money into lives changed? We're doing a baptism on the 21st of this month. I am so pumped about it. Do you know what? When you see baptisms, you should see it and go, oh, oh, that was that $50 I gave. That was that $100 I gave. It somehow God used that to transform it into a life changed. I'm not up here to twist your arm to make you... I'm sorry if I made you feel bad. I'm not meaning to do that. I'm not meaning to put our staff on some, like, point fingers at anything. I I just, I just want to talk to you as adults. See, we're all adults here, right? We can all see the difference that could be made when the church would stand up and have a higher vision. So what's your vision? What's it like? I'm hoping that I've convinced you of at least four words today. To work hard, 
and be generous. Work hard and be generous. Today, as you go to communion, go to this time of offering, um, I encourage you to just slow down as you take it. Don't do it quickly. Remember that he came who was rich. He became poor for you and me so that he could give his wealth away to us. Remember him. Will you guys stand with us and sing this? If you need to come forward and talk to somebody, we'll be up here. We would love to talk to you about Jesus.